Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Friends, we're approaching the two-year anniversary of the Rural Woman Podcast, and I want to celebrate by hosting a giveaway. You can win a Rural Woman prize pack with podcast gear and some other great goodies. To enter, all you have to do is take a screenshot of the episode that you're listening to right now and share it on your social media. Be sure to tag me at Farmer and use the hashtag the Rural Woman Podcast. That's it. It's that easy. Contest is open from now until March 22nd, 2021. For more details, including what's included in the prize pack, head to today's show notes. Happy listening and good luck to you. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Kathy Payne. Kathy R. Payne retired from a 33-year teaching career in 2010. At the age of 57, she started a sustainable farm, Broad River Pastures, in Elberton, Georgia, with her husband, John. The farm specialized in nutrient-dense food and heritage breed livestock. In her third year of farming, she discovered the guinea hog breed. It seemed like a perfect fit for an 11-acre homestead. She became frustrated, however, about the scant information she couldn't find about the hog's history and bloodlines. Kathy had experience with interviews, research, and writing from her doctoral program, so she decided to write a book herself titled Saving the Guinea Hogs, The Recovery of an American Homestead Breed, which we're going to speak all about today. And be sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode because Kathy has generously offered a discount for her book to the listeners of the Rural Woman podcast. I'm very excited for you guys to get to know more about Kathy and more about the amazing guinea hog breed. Before we get to today's episode, let's go over our review of the week. This week's listener review comes from Chalk JB via Apple Podcasts. This five-star rating and review is titled, My New Favorite Podcast. I have loved each episode and can't wait for the next. Caitlin does a great job of bringing the stories of women in all aspects of egg operation to the airwaves. I appreciate the diversity of operations, stories, and geographies. Keep up the great work and building the community. Well, thank you so much for your kind rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And if you guys are loving this show, I encourage you to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. You may have heard in the intro that I am hosting an anniversary giveaway for the listeners of the Rural Woman podcast, which I am so excited. I cannot believe it's already been two years on the air for the Rural Woman podcast, but it is coming up quick. So be sure to take a screenshot of the episode that you're listening to today and post it to your social media. Make sure you tag me at Wild Rose Farmer and use the hashtag the Rural Woman podcast. That way, I'll be able to keep track of all of the entries into the giveaway, which I am real excited for whoever wins because there is lots of great stuff in this prize pack. So make sure you guys enter each and every week up until the anniversary of the show, which is March 22nd, 2021. Happy listening and good luck to everyone. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Kathy. Hi, Kathy. How are you? 
Hi, Caitlin. I'm doing great. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. I am excited to get to know you a little bit better and for you to share your story with my audience. Well, I'm excited to be here, Caitlin. So for my listeners who are unfamiliar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and where you're from. Well, my name's Kathy Payne. My other name is Kathy R. Payne. I'm currently in Athens, Georgia. I've grown grew up around the Midwest. I was in Duluth, Minnesota, not not too far from the Canadian border when I was growing up, but I spent all my life in suburban kind of settings and I do you want the long introduction or the short one? You give us as much as you want, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, what I am today is I'm an author of a book, and but I went through a homesteading journey. So over the years, I've lived everywhere, and I have t- I taught school for 33 years, and I retired, started a homestead, and did that for eight years, and really emphasized heritage livestock breeds and nutrient-dense foods. And then I moved back to the Athens area near family and am in suburbia. But I guess an important detail is I did not start homesteading until I was 57 years old. So a lot of people like to are encouraged by that. They think, oh, I'm 35 years old and I've never farmed, so it's too late for me. But it's never too late. So whatever you want to do, just get out there and do it. So that's my short story. (laughs) That's great. And there's so many things to unpack here. So what made you decide at the age of 57 that you wanted to start homesteading? It's funny because it was, I'm not an impulsive person. I guess I'm more free and impulsive as I age than I was in earlier years. And it's not like it's something I dreamed about, but I grew up kind of in rural areas and visited my grandparents and they had grown up in farms. And it just, I just connected to agriculture. But it, what really got us started was eating healthy food. And we realized that if we were going to eat the most healthy food there was and the cleanest food and the best grown, we needed to know where it was coming from and how it was grown and have a connection to farmers. And somehow that happened to us around 2005. And so we started, you know, we joined the CSA. We started driving one place for beef and another place to meet a chicken farmer and trying to find somebody with good eggs. And eventually, we kind of made a career that was like our weekend activities was buying food from farmers. And we went on a lot of farm tours, and we joined Georgia Organics, which is an awesome association. They had Joel Salatin for a speaker one year. And and then we started a podcast called Our Natural Life, which was telling other people who lived in suburbia how to live a more natural life and have more connections to farmers. So... After a couple of years of doing that, it just kind of seemed like the next step was to grow our own food. And so that's kind of where that led us. That's amazing. So what do you think has been the most helpful in you starting your journey in homesteading? The most helpful in which way? Helpful in resources or things that guided you. Was there any websites or books or anything that really put you into the direction of where you are today? 
There were, I would say, Acres USA was a big influence on us. That is a, a magazine. It's also a publishing company, and it's an annual conference. And they stress nutrient-dense foods. So they go into organic production, biodynamics, permaculture, those kind of topics. And so those kind of drove me in the right direction. And their bookstore is just amazing. So most of the books that I got were from there online bookstore. But a lot of it was just trying things out and just having kind of a general idea of where I was going and then going down a path and seeing if that worked for me and starting small and then ramping up on the things that worked and letting go of the things that didn't work. Great. So tell us about your current homestead now. What are you raising and what are you growing there today? Well, that's the interesting part is because I'm not homesteading anymore. So my homestead journey started in 2010 and it ended in 2018. So now I'm in suburbia, but I have a three quarter acre lot and we have deer and foxes and squirrels and armadillos and all kinds of things that live and pass by on our property. But as far as growing things, I'm feeding insects right now. So I'm growing, I, I tore out Asian invasive kinds of plants and I'm working on a native wildlife garden in my space. So I, I do grow some medicinal herbs and strawberries and okra, but mostly it is just, I'm planting things like milkweed and things that the bugs and caterpillars like to eat. So I'm moving toward a, a native environment around me things that are native to the Georgia area. And I'm near the University of Georgia. But I, I'm writing for homesteaders now. So I left farming after raising a rare breed of pigs called the guinea hogs for five years. And I was raising also heritage sheep and heritage rabbits. And so now I do work for the Livestock Conservancy as a contract worker and writing and interviewing. And so all my efforts that aren't on the native plants are on heritage livestock breeds and writing in that genre. So I write for homesteaders. (laughs) That's great. Tell us more about your introduction to heritage breed livestock and to guinea hogs in particular. Yes, well, when I was in Atlanta suburbs and doing the podcast, we were looking for themes for a November broadcast, and I talked a little bit about heritage turkeys, and I looked up what does that actually mean, and and of course, that led me to the Livestock Conservancy. In Canada, you have, I think, a rare breeds organization, and in England, they have something called the Rare Breed Trust survival. And in the United States, we have the Livestock Breed Conservancy. So the Livestock Breed Conservancy covers over 150 breeds of animals that are in some danger of losing their status or eventually going extinct. So when we started farming, I really wanted to preserve heritage breeds. I've always loved mammals. I've always loved breeding and genetics. 
So the first breed that we raised was the Gulf Coast Native Sheep. And the Gulf Coast Native Sheep came over in the 1500s with Spanish boats, and they settled in the Gulf Coast areas. So anything that could survive the heat, humidity, and the parasites didn't die and recreated itself. And it's a wool breed and also has very tasty meat. And so those were perfect for raising in Georgia because they're small, they're easy to manage, and they survive well in the heat. And we also had American meat rabbits, which are a blue-colored rabbit. They were blue or white, and they were first developed after World War One in, I think, the early 1930s, and they were a great rabbit, very easy to raise. And then one of my rabbit customers came all the way from Texas to Georgia to buy some rabbits, and she told me that she had recently gotten some guinea hogs, and I said, well, tell me about that, you know, because I just couldn't find much information about them. I didn't know anybody who had them, and I wanted to know what's so special about them, and she just raved. And so I started trying to research the breed, and of course, I went to the Livestock Breeds Conservancy, and they had several paragraphs, maybe a couple of pages about the breed, and I read that, and then I started finding a website here and there, but they pretty much were spitting out the same information, you know, a few paragraphs that they got from the Livestock Conservancy. So I said, well, if I'm going to read something about this breed, I guess I'll just have to do the research and write it myself, and then I'll have something to read. And I, I really set out to write a book. So I wanted to know everything about this breed. And that's what I did. I started doing interviews, and I started that in 2013. And I didn't finish the research for my book until about two weeks before it was printed in 2019 in March. I was still interviewing people and getting stuff in that last chapter. And since then, I've had readers contacting me and giving me more information and history that they're digging, my history of the pig went from 1950 to 2019. And they're finding things that go back to the 1700s and the 1800s. So it'll take me another year or two to try to just wean that information out and put it on a timeline and write another book about the guinea hog. Wow. That's so incredible. And it, well, it's so great that the work that you're doing is so useful. And like you said, you did your research and there wasn't anything out there like this. So you did it yourself. So that's wonderful. Yes. And starting homesteading late in life, I had to do everything that was manageable for me. So we kept things fairly small scale. And the heritage breeds, if you find a heritage breed that's suitable for your climate, that's something that's adapted to your area, then it makes it so much easier because you're not always fighting it. And and the thing about heritage breeds is that they are adapted to certain climates, and that's where they do well, climates or humidity or rain or whatever the situation is. And so I 
just the southern breeds, except for rabbits. Rabbits always like cold weather, but I learned how to manage them so that they were breeding cold weather and took a vacation in the summer. That's nice. (laughs) You can help support the stories of women in agriculture to be shared through the Rural Woman podcast on Patreon. What is Patreon? It's a membership-based platform that helps fund and support creators like me to create and produce content like this that you all love. New to the Rural Woman Podcast Patreon is ad-free listening and patron-only bonus content and exclusive episodes. Learn more and join the patron gang today at patreon.com slash the Rural Woman Podcast. For the listeners who may be unfamiliar with the guinea hog breed, can you describe some of their key characteristics? Yes, I can. They are a small breed. So when I say small, there are some lines that can reach maybe 150 to 250 pounds at maturity, but there are others that will grow to 350 or 400 pounds. But when you think of a standard pig, those will get to be 900, 1,200 pounds. So it's much smaller than a standard pig. And the typical thinking is that you take, uh, if you were just getting a feeder pig, that you'd take a feeder pig at eight weeks and grow it out and feed it for, until it was six months old. And at that point, you'd have 200 to 250 pound animal. You'd go home with 150 pounds of meat after butchering. That's not what you're going to get with the guinea hog. Uh, but you, you might grow the guinea hog out for nine months or 12 months instead of six months and then get half the amount of meat. But for a homesteader, if you have an animal that's having 10 babies twice a year and growing them out and getting 50 pounds of meat from each one, if you were just doing it for the meat, that's a lot of meat. <laughs> that's going to take up a lot of freezer space, even if you just have two pigs. So it is not always a drawback to have a smaller animal to butcher and a smaller space to store your food. By having the solid black color, um, they do well in hot weather, direct sunshine. But basically, they're very easy to manage docile animal and most of the heritage breeds are they tend to be the kind that people had around the family around a homestead in a diverse setting and so they were selected for a good temperament and these hogs i trained a couple of myself when they were just little gilts to sit when i told them to sit and they all all of my breeders were taught their names and they would come when they were called and I had portable gates that I would put on my portable electric fencing and I could just open up the door for the one uh, pig that I needed for breeding and then I would shut the gate as soon as she came through and then I'd maybe take her over to the boar if she needed to be bred and they're so easy (laughs) really so easy 
but I don't want to get anybody's expectations up to think they're perfect. You know, all of these are the perfect pig. I mean, they're still pigs, but and they're still animals, and they still do what they want to do. But, Absolutely. And they have to be trained, but they're easy to train, but they can be trained. So, And most pigs can, but it's just so much easier. Right. Well, it sounds to me like the perfect pig, but like you said, it's still a livestock animal. So they're still going to act out when they want to act out, just like a toddler, maybe. <laughs> yes. And the bay and the boys, you know, I always give a lot of respect to any male animal on the farm, whether it's a bull or a stallion or a boar or a ram or, you know, you just don't mess with them. You have to respect them. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if there's a girl around. Yes. <laughs> so in your book, Saving the Guinea Hogs, you wrote that the American guinea hog was almost actually extinct in 2006. Can you tell us what has been done to preserve this breed since then? Yes. The big thing was that in 2006, a group of people who intended to breed them met with a representative from the Livestock Conservancy. I believe it was Bill Bixby out in the Midwest. At a, They were going there for an artificial insemination conference, and they set an intention that's always important, set an intention, have a plan, that they would start an organization and the conservancy would help them get ready with the registration and setting up their bylaws, and then that they would go around the country and find these clusters pigs where they could find them and then start a registration process and an education process and that is what they did in 2006. Now what nobody had ever done was actually tell that story and interview all those major players that did those actions and so, and then they never interviewed the sources where they got their pigs to find out where those pigs come from. So I made a lot of phone calls and did a lot of recordings and had everything transcribed and spent the next several years just talking to somebody and then they would say, have you talked with so-and-so? And I'd say, no, how do I reach that person? And just calling people and asking questions and asking questions. And that's the basis of my book. Well, and you were so kind in sending me a copy of your book, which I have been picking through and learning all about this amazing breed. One thing that popped up in the first chapter in the first few pages was the story of Cohen Archer. Yes. Would you mind sharing that story with the listeners? I think they will really like it. I know I sure did. Would you like me to read it to them? Yeah, you sure can if you'd like. Sure, I'd be happy to. So this is in Chapter 1, Meet the Guinea Hog. In the early spring of 2017, I was raising guinea hogs in northeast Georgia. I had spent a couple of years seeking out older guinea hog breeders so I could pick their brains about the history of the hogs. It was getting increasingly difficult to find first-person documentation. One morning in March, I was a little late getting out to tend the livestock. I was surprised when the house phone rang as it was only 8 o'clock. Good morning, Mrs. Kathy, I answered. The raspy voice of an older southern gentleman replied, My phone told me to call you. I didn't recall leaving any messages, but I bit my tongue and listened. My name is Cohen Archer, 
Do you have any kitty hogs? Yes, I do, I said. Do you have the big boned or the little boned? He inquired. Well, I have a nice mix of both, but I think mostly big boned, I replied. As we made arrangements for a visit, Mr. Archer told me that he was 75 years old and from Washington County, Georgia. He said he had not seen a guinea hog in a long time. He started telling me about the hogs his daddy kept. They gained weight easily, he told me. My family ran them in the woods. They had their babies in pine sapling pasture. I told Mr. Archer that I was saving stories like his and would be honored to have him visit the hogs as soon as possible. I requested and received permission to tape record his stories to share with others. Before we hung up, I asked Cohen how he had found me. I told my phone to find guinea hogs in Georgia or South Carolina, he answered, and your name and phone number showed up on my phone. Siri to the rescue. On the appointed day, Cohen and I walked the pasture so I could show my beloved breeding sows and boars. I turned on the recorder as I took him to see a brand new litter of piglets that my sow, Yokely Summertime, had delivered. That is about what we used to have when we used to grow them when I was a boy, Mr. Archer reminisced. That is a typical guinea hog, as I remember. They were very gentle. I used to take care of the pigs. If you have them out in the open, the sows will make their own bed. It'll be a huge pile of straw and different things like sticks that they pick up. The sows put the pigs up under the straw and all, and you won't even see them till the sow calls them out. These were the best hogs I'd ever seen. We just had them running in the woods and would fence off the woods. We grew crops in the upper part of the land and would fence them in when we started planting crops. And every day we'd call them up and give them a little feed to keep them coming. Just really nice, gentle hogs. Do you know anyone else who had guinea hogs, I required? I didn't, didn't really know how important it was to keep in touch with them. But now that I'm getting old, I see. They say your hindsight is better than your foresight. I took him over to see a young boar that had flopped over to be rubbed on its belly. Cohen bent over and started rubbing the soft, warm hog. It began to grunt appreciatively. Another boar came over and offered himself for a rub down, too. Cohen had one hand on each hog. Isn't that a nice hog, he exclaimed. That's just nice, I'll tell you. Cohen seemed suddenly transformed in time from an elderly gentleman to a young boy again. His voice was excited and awestruck. I remember those curly tails. As a child, I loved the guinea piglets when they were young. They were so pretty and plump. I always remember that. And I remember when they were expecting they would be huge. I wish I could remember all about them. I've been thinking about my daddy's hogs for a long time. Just last week, I said, well, I'll just see if I can find some, and that is what I've done. I did a little math in my head. The Archer family had raised hogs for nine years, from 1946 to 1954. Cohen was now 75 years old. His father had died when he was about 12. So it's been 62 years since you've seen or touched a guinea hog, I exclaimed. You called me out of the blue because you wanted to see one again. 
and you didn't even know I was here until you asked your phone to find me. Right. I think at that point we were both choked up. We wiped back tears. How do you feel reliving that childhood memory? I asked quietly. My throat felt quick. It feels really good, he said with a sigh. I'll stop right there. That is just so sweet and just such a sentiment to the work that you're doing and the work that you and other guinea hog breeders have done because you are preserving these stories and you're preserving this animal who has meant so much to so many people. Yes. And it's interesting that we found more and more stories like that. And as we're going back and looking at things from the 1800s, people, they write in letters or they write in newspapers or just little agricultural journals. And they share these little stories about this old-fashioned hog. And it's funny because you can read something that was printed in 1860, and it's talking about the old-fashioned guinea hogs. So we're just having to keep going back and back and back to find out where these hogs came from or where they lived. And But you always have these stories about their excellent ability to just eat grass and make meat and their good temperament and that they're good mothers. So that's been a consistent trait over the years. That's wonderful. You have heard me tell you all about the amazing benefits that come with being a patron of the Roll Woman podcast through Patreon, but I wanted to share with you a few testimonials from the patron gang themselves. Patron Tiffany writes, Being able to support Caitlin telling the stories of amazing women in egg is a great way to support all of us. Without her telling our stories, would we be willing to talk about them ourselves? I love hearing a new podcast on Fridays, plus getting to hear some outtakes and a chance to win some great gear as a patron is definitely a perk. Egg supports egg, and this is just one way I help support agriculture. Join Tiffany in supporting the stories of women in agriculture through the Rural Woman podcast starting at $2 a month on Patreon. Visit wildrosefarmer.com slash Patreon to learn more. Kathy, what are your hopes for the future when it comes to the American guinea hog? Well, I really hope that it will continue. My dream is that my grandchildren's grandchildren will be able to touch a guinea hog sometime in their lifetime and that they will continue. And I feel that way about all of the heritage breeds, just like we preserve national parks, national forests, and historic buildings, we need to also preserve our historic heritage livestock. And I think Canada does such a good job with that. They have a national registry where they keep all the records. And uh, here in the United States, um, the Livestock Conservancy is moving toward helping out with that effort, but we don't have a national um, registry for the breeds. And England is doing a great job with that as well. For someone interested in starting out with guinea hogs, what would be some pieces of advice that you could share with them? 
Well, just like for any livestock, you need good fencing, you need some basic shelter, and you need you need guardian dogs. So you need predator control. So, and there are no guinea hogs in Canada, unfortunately, but they are all around in the United States. They are southern pig, but they have adapted to cold weather and snow, and they are doing quite well up there. So they can live in the woods. They can live in pasture. You need to know your breeder, and you need to to get registered stock if you want to preserve the breed. It's not helping to preserve the breed if you buy unregistered pigs. I'm looking out the window right now, Kathy, and I can just imagine that this pig would not be very happy with it today. It is blizzarding <laughs> like crazy. So, <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, they do. They do like being out on pasture, but they do well in the woods. That's great. One other question about advice and tips for anyone who is of the older generations who are thinking that they want to start farming or homesteading. What advice would you give them about starting out later in life? I'd say go for it. You do want to plan for safety and, and take it slowly and start small and, and grow. But that's true for anybody, I think, whenever they start. But we did think about safety on the farm and being able to lift things. And, and work. we worked with interns. And that way we had some strong backs to help us out. And But go for it because the nice thing is you're doing what you love. You're getting exercise. You're getting fresh air and sunshine. And if it's your passion, if it's what you enjoy doing, then how healthy is that Absolutely, retirement? Absolutely. That's a great retirement to me, I think. So, Kathy, it has been so wonderful getting to chat with you today and share your story and share all of your knowledge when it comes to guinea hogs. My last question for you is, what is the most rewarding part for you for being a farmer and a homesteader? I think it was getting in connection to the cycles of nature and being out in the fresh air and sunshine. There was something very peaceful with that. And also with the baby animals and connecting to the mothers and seeing the things that were similar from generation to generation. It was just very affirming. It was very much being part of something bigger than myself that you don't get when you're getting into your garage and your car and driving to work and coming back after dark and just doing the household chores and it's just not the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online and where can they find more information about purchasing your book? That is a fantastic question. My website is www.guineahogs.com and that's spelled G. U-I-E-N-E-A, Guinea. And on Instagram, I am at Guinea Hog Books. And at my website, you can purchase my book. And I'm going to do a coupon code. I'm going to do RWP25. 
for Rural Women's Podcast 25% off, and that will take the $24.99 copy of my book, the paperback, to $18.75 with the 25% off, and that includes free shipping. That is great. Kathy, thank you so much. It's also, of course, on Amazon. Oh, great. You are so welcome. It has been so wonderful getting to know you and sharing your story. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at wildrosefarmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.